You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock, as always. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. And last week, we got into some off-season targets, going through a lot of the forwards. There weren't too many defensemen available. And now we want to get into goalies. So I was wondering, who should we bring on to talk about goaltending? Kevin Woodley's been one of my favorites to listen to, whether it's on the radio and his podcast. He does a lot of great work with some of the great clear sight analytics data that's there, and he'll be joining us today. So thanks a lot for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, nice to finally meet you in person via Zoom, as close as we can be in this day and age. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Yeah, well, you're out in BC. We're in the Toronto area. So, I mean, you don't really get to be in person that much anyways. Everything's through Zoom these days. So I, I have, I've come to accept it. It is what it is. Yeah, we get. I mean, you get to you can channel some of our uh, peace, love, dope vibes from uh, out west here while we chat. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So, Anthony, before we get started, the Leafs' goaltending situation is a bit weird heading into this off season. We suspect that Frederick Anderson is going to hit the open market. Jack Campbell looks set to be the one A. They're looking for a one B in net. What are your overall goaltending thoughts as we approach this discussion? Well, the first the first question I wanted to kind of pose, just open it up for discussion with you guys, is do you, do you think? I mean, Tampa obviously just won the cup. Vasilevsky's incredible. That's back to back cups for them. If you rewind like ten or so years ago, Chicago basically had an incredible team, but kind of shoddy goaltending, and that was really the first time that I could remember in a long time especially because before that it was the Brodeur and Ed Belfour and Patrick Waugh era where people were like, yeah, you could win a cup without like really good goaltending. You could just kind of cobble it together and, and have an unbelievable team. And Tampa does have an unbelievable team, but there were a number of games where they were outplayed and Vasilevsky basically stole them probably four or five games in this run. Do you guys think we're starting to see a shift back to like you need an incredible goalie and maybe drafting a goalie in the first round isn't uh, as bad of an idea as others would, you you know, made it out to be the last 10 years or so. Ooh. Um, I think we've already started, right? Like uh, we've seen first round goalies go pretty high. Spencer Knight, Yaroslav Askarov. Um, obviously there's a lot of hype around Jesper Wallstead and Sebastian Kosa this year. So, you know, I, I think we're already maybe there in terms of, Listen, if you trust your goalie people, and we're seeing more and more teams uh, build out goalie departments where it's not just, uh, you know, your regular scouts. You've got dedicated goalie scouts in a lot of situations. You've got people that are, you know, very much on top of the position specifically uh, with eyes on goaltending prospects. Um, you know, I, I, I think if you have a staff, you trust in the goaltending department and you see a guy that you think is worthy of that first round pick I think there's less fear across the board um, about taking that shot in the first round than there was three four years the problem started sort of uh, if you look at a lot of the guys that sort of became the busts that get pointed to a lot of it was in an era where especially in the CHL, you could basically build a really good team and have a goaltender that just gets into spots and drops and closes holes and get away with it. We had, 
you know, we had Jeff Glass on the podcast recently for on our podcast on Ingle Radio, and um, you know he talked about sort of being one of those guys, right? Like that's there was an era there, and then 13 years later he makes the NHL um, for a short stint. Like there was an era there where that success might have been team based, and the goaltenders got picked high without recognizing that they weren't necessarily the root cause of that success. I think we're past that point. Um, I think there's enough people around the league that understand how to identify good goaltending. Um, and frankly, I don't know at any level anymore that you can get away with being that guy. Like you have to be able to move and react. And so that's kind of gone by the wayside. So yeah, I think we're already headed there in terms of, you know, being willing to spend a first round pick. Like I don't have it in front of me, but here's a, here's a question you guys can look up. Like when was the last time? Like, yeah, Vasilevsky that's kind of a tough comparison. He's the best goaltender in the world. He's won back-to-back cups. Like he, you're not just nest just cause you pick a goalie in the first round. Doesn't mean you're getting Andre Vasilevsky. He's a freak. He's like the big cat is the perfect nickname. He is an exceptional talent. Um, and he's, he's progressed over his years in Tampa Bay. Like two years ago, he shouldn't have been a cup. Shouldn't have been a Vesna finalist because his first half was terrible. And one of the things that, um, he struggled with in the first half was they became a very good defensive team two years ago. And all of a sudden he wasn't being asked to carry them and he wasn't busy and he had to adjust his mindset to be able to play behind a team that wasn't keeping him as busy as they used to. And so his first half kind of stunk. His second half was exceptional because he he worked with a mindset coach, worked with a sports psychologist. He figured out ways to sort of take that step in his development. And now he's a guy that can play it either way. Like if you, you want to lean on me and give up 40 a night, I can do that. If we're only giving up 19, I'm not going to struggle. And listen, not every guy can do that. Like you guys talked about Jack Campbell. One of the things I don't think he gets enough credit for is his ability to play behind a better defensive team than the Leafs have been in the past. Not every guy can do that. Cujo's the classic example. Um, You know, historically, a guy who was exceptional behind bad teams, 50, 60 shots a night, stands on his head. Put him behind the Detroit Red Wings with 20-some-odd shots a night and expectations of a cop and not that busy, and he struggled. So um, that's one of the things that Vasilevsky has progressed with. But a step that he took, but there was no guarantees he could. So there's still a lot of questions. At the end of the day, when was the last time we saw a cup winner that wasn't sort of homegrown? That's the other question. Like there are a bunch of different guys here, but I'm just, you know, doing the gymnastics in my brain and Tampa twice, St. Louis, Pitt twice, Washington with Holtby. Yeah, you're right. Homegrown talent. That's at least what seven years at least. Yeah. That Chicago kind of like broke I mean, Chicago their last cup did actually have Corey Crawford. LA had Jonathan Quick. So yeah, you kind of run through it, and and that's a good point. You talk about developing goalies and putting it in the system. And I think people are, you know, it, I hate to say his name is like, but whatever. It's like it's like the Almontoyas of the world who went sixth overall, and then it was like everybody got really gun shy on on goalies, and it, you know. But you brought up like you know not just Vasilevsky, Spencer Knight's incredible. Would love to have that guy on my team. <laughs> Yeah, Knight, and I think Wallstead's going to follow in the in in that footsteps this year. I think Askarov, we've seen the natural talent that's there. There's still some things that need to develop. Like, 
So it's a matter of sort of identifying a guy that you think can can reach that level and then putting him in a position where you help his progression, whether it's whether it's in some cases by leaving him overseas where he gets to play against a higher level of competition than he might if you brought him over early to junior. Um, there's lots of different sort of paths. But if you identify a guy that has enough talent that you truly believe he's going to be an elite number one, you know, to get back to the original question, I... If you believe in the people that are making that identification, then I don't know why you see that as any bigger risk um, than than you would find with a position player. I think if you probably broke it down by picks and position, there are probably just as many busts at the other ones. Um, we just focus on the goaltenders because there haven't been as many picked. So one of my favorite things about your work, Kevin, is that you take the environment into account when you're looking at goaltenders. Because one of the biggest things that I like doing when I'm trying to measure goaltenders is, okay, what's a stat that takes the context into account? Because a shot from the blue line isn't the same as a shot from the middle of the slot. There's a much greater chance of the high danger shots going in than there is from the shots that come from really far away. And when you're trying to measure a goaltender's performance, one of the best things we do in the public sphere right now is we look at the expected goals that should have gone in and then the actual goals that did go in. And if you look at the difference there, the best goaltenders in the league this year at outperforming those numbers, Marc-Andre Fleury, Connor Hellebuck, and you already mentioned Andre Vasilevsky, by far the leader in the playoffs. Among goaltenders who are off-season targets this year, you're looking at guys who could become available via trade, via free agency, RFAs who might get moved. Who's someone near the top of your list in terms of outperforming expectations uh, when you take the contextual factors into account? You know, it's interesting. One guy who's had some ups and downs, but, uh, you know, on a save percentage basis in terms of outperforming expected save percentage, um, he was right there with uh, last year's Vesna winner is Laurent Brassois with uh, the Winnipeg Jets. Um so there's a guy that's headed into UFA whose name I don't even think I've heard from anyone this year. I put out a tweet asking people and I saw 10, 20 names and his name did not come up. Yeah. So there's a guy that, you know, maybe it's because um, Hellebuck gets so much work there. People uh, un underestimate. They don't get to see LB play. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a fit that's just so good they're not going to move off of it. Uh, they really seem to work well off each other. And, and you know, listen, like, it's one thing to do it in a limited sample. It's another thing to do it, you know, if, you've, if you're expected to play more. But And I think also, like I said, some inconsistency. Like, his numbers over the past three years have dipped up and down. But, you know, again, this past season, he was right there statistically with – Connor Hellebuck so you know that's one that 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 I think might be worth a flyer um you know obviously Philip Grubauer is sort of the the top of the class and you know Vezin Trophy finalist um in terms of uh heading into unrestricted free agency this summer and yet when I look at his adjusted numbers you know um, yeah, the, 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 the expected goals are okay because there's a, there's sort of a workload. There's a volume there as a number one. Um, but you know, in terms of save percentage, like it's, it's more in the mid teens. So you're not, you know, you're not paying for, you, you may end up paying for a top 10 guy there. And I'm not sure that's what you're getting. Again, other names that sort of get overlooked, Jonathan Bernier, um, Linus Elmark is a name that I find constantly overlooked he's my favorite name in this crop of free agents he's the one who i keep zeroing and I, I keep coming back to him because despite the context in buffalo he still put up good numbers the last couple of years yeah and, and consistently over the last couple of years and similar numbers like they didn't there wasn't a lot of variation there he was consistently well above um 
The only question with Linus, and this probably goes to a similar conversation with Auntie Ranta, who has been excellent when healthy for the Arizona Coyotes the past couple of years, um, that would be my only similar question with Linus is where's he at with the health? Because he has missed a lot of time. And, you know, Buffalo was a different team with and without him, which sort of showed you how good and important he was to that team. But at the same time, the fact they were without him so much, you know, again, if you're in one of the biggest things of being a number one goaltender is being available when, when required to play, like being able and healthy to get out there is a big part of being a number one. And that's been something that's increasingly in the last two years has become a question mark. But to me, he's, you know, he's up, he's up near the top of that class or should be up near the top of that class. I had him as a guy who people should be targeting on the, on the trade market um, heading into the deadline before Buffalo sort of pulled him off the market. Uh, and cause they saw what everyone else saw, said how much better and how important he was to that team. So, um, you know, some of the other names, uh, Chris Dreger is one that I think is a, a lot of people talk about. Uh, he's a great story. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, lessons that he learned to sort of be that prototypical late bloomer, uh, some things he wasn't doing early in his career as a pro that we've talked about with him. He's quite open and honest about it. I think he's a guy that because of the experiences he went through and going all the way back to the ECHL to, to begin to sort of restart and re begin climbing up the pecking order in Florida. Like there are some elements there that if you've got a young goaltender, you're putting him in a tandem with like, there's some positives that they will learn from him. Um, But again, depends on the price. Uh, When I look at adjusted numbers, listen, like he's been really good in Florida, but the adjusted numbers don't match the raw numbers. Like this is not 938 top five, top 10 goaltending overall. That's a really good defensive environment he played behind. Hey, he also outperformed Sergei Bobrovsky in that environment, like head to head, toe to toe this year, outperformed him by a pretty good margin. So, you know, if that's your reference point, like that's fair. I would just, I'd want to look deeper at the environment, frankly. I'd want to be like, listen, this is a really good defensive team. He's got some strengths that fit the way they defend. So if we're going to invest in this guy, and this is an exercise, frankly, I think, teams should be doing to avoid mistakes in free agency with goaltenders. Anyways, let's take a look at his strengths. Let's take a look at the type of chances he faced the most, the ones he had the most success on the ones he struggled with. And do we give those up a lot, a little, like if he's a guy that thrives off the rush and I'm not giving you straight examples, but if that's where his strength is and we're a team that doesn't give up anything off the rush, why are we making that investment? I, I think too often teams, uh, buy in on a goaltender based on sort of overall he's good without looking enough at the fit. Will he be good on our team? And I can think of countless examples over the years where teams have invested assets, money, and term in guys that just frankly, I give Eddie Lack's my perfect example. Carolina brought him in and then asked him not only to become a different goaltender, but to play to his clearly biggest weaknesses after giving up assets and handing him a two-year extension. Hey, we got you. We invested in you. Now we want you to change how you play away from all your strengths and play to all your biggest weaknesses. Those types of things makes no, make no sense. There's enough statistics out there that we should be on that. So if we're looking at the Leafs' defensive system right now, which again feels weird to say after watching this team for the last decade, 
the entire fire defensively. Now they're actually a well-structured team who seems to have some strengths defensively. If you're looking at the Leafs system right now defensively and the types of chances that they tend to give up, which type of goaltender would you be looking at to fill that role? Because I know, like you said, it matters. The fit between the defensive structure and the way that your goaltender plays, I think it's something that we don't take into account enough because... Frankly, I don't think there's enough information out there publicly that we can actually assess this properly. I think you do need access to some of the private stuff to get a better read on it. But based on what you're looking at, what do you see as a good fit between Toronto's defensive system and the goaltenders that could be available? Well, it requires a little bit of sort of scrambling on my end to try and bring up one of their goalies to sort of have an example of of what their environment looks like. Jack Campbell's probably your best bet. I think he succeeded the most for Toronto this year and was probably more or less what they're looking for. Well, and I think the one thing you have to keep in mind here is, um, you know, how does a guy perform in an environment that isn't as busy, right? Like, like the ability to play. And that's one thing, as I said before, I don't think Jack gets enough credit for is the fact that, and, and I think this might be an area where, you know, Freddie was really good when they were bleeding chances all over the place. And his numbers since they sort of started tightening up have, have waned a little bit. And obviously some of that is injury. So um, having a guy that doesn't need to be busy to be good would be a part of this equation. Like um, just to throw an example out there, and I don't think it's something the Leafs could look at because I have a funny feeling based on a press conference tomorrow, he may be retiring. But Pekka Rene is a guy who even in his prime, really would have struggled behind this environment where he's not busy. Now, he found ways to get better, much like Vasilevsky, at handling that, you know, um, sort of less busy, uh, low-event low environment. He became a hyper-aggressive puck handler. Like, you watch him go get pucks, like, off the wall, off the glass, body slamming himself in behind the net. Just That's how he stayed engaged. It's how he ended up scoring a goal this past season, like... Um, he would actually make saves behind the net. Other goalies around the league used to marvel at it to me. Like he would slide into the boards and like one pad down VH to to stop a hard rim. That's how he stayed engaged. He loved scooping pucks off the ground with his glove for fun just to show off that he could do it. Well, I mean, hey, listen, I've talked to, I remember talking to Shea Weber back in the early days of when he was ha- in his, when Pekka was really at his prime um, and he used to catch pucks along the ice and every, all of the, I remember Weber and some of the other defensemen there at the time talking about it. Like, you know, a rebound off the pads as a defenseman, I've got my back to that and I don't know where it's going. And so every time he kills that play and creates a, a defensive zone faceoff, that's a, it's a far more organized thing to defend than a rebound that I don't know where it's going. So they loved when he used to catch those pucks off the ice. So, um, but my point being, the bigger point being in terms of the lease, like you have to find a guy that's comfortable in a low shot environment. Jacob Markstrom was the prime, like he was the guy in free agency last summer. I would have said that Toronto would have been a really bad fit because the one thing the Canucks did was give up a lot of chances. A lot of them were easy chances. Like they gave up a lot of high danger, but they also gave up a ton from the outside. And we used to always like Travis Green would say, oh yeah, we gave up a lot of shots tonight, but a lot from the outside and all the media would roll their eyes. But he, he wasn't actually wrong. They gave up a ton of low danger, but they also gave up a lot of high danger. Perfect for Markstrom. They're what I call the 99 percenters. Like 99 percenters, you, you, those are the shots you love as a goaltender. 
give me a bunch of those early because I'm going to feel good about my game. I'm going to pad my stats. I'm going to sort of settle into a game. Carolina goalies used to lament this, especially back in the sort of Bill Peters era. Like they were constantly just throwing pucks to the net. Like they dominated Corsi and all these things, but there was no quality. And so the, the, the Carolina goalies would watch this go on at the other end. And he's like, we're just warming the other guy up. Like I'm down here watching for five minutes while we control zone time. We haven't created more than one or two decent chances. And then when we do turn it over, it's a two on one and I haven't seen a puck in five minutes. Like, um, so you got to find a guy, Jacob, Jacob was one of those guys that I had some question marks about whether he would be a fit without sort of all those low quality chances to allow him to feel into his game. Not that he couldn't do it, he just hadn't had the opportunity to do it. So first and foremost, you got to find a guy that fits that environment because that's what the Leafs are right now. Like they are not a high event team defensively. Their goaltenders have to be able to manage that. So when you talk about environment, the the play style is definitely one thing that goes without saying. And the other thing is it, Jack Campbell. I mean, nobody's going to say that this guy is a sure thing. Uh, like he he hasn't even played 100 games in the league yet late bloomer i'd like to think that he keeps the train rolling um not because of any sort of statistic or whatever i would just like to hope that he does but at, it, it would be hope so it's interesting that you brought up a name like brassois because i was looking through all the goalies uh before we started recording and i did look at his name and like that guy's played 82 games in the league this year or sorry in his career and can they really go into a situation in Toronto, which, you know, you brought up Bernier, like it eats goalies that are a bit inexperienced and can go on some rough patches. And Bernier has actually been a good goalie in the league for the past few years. Do you worry about that? Yeah, I do. And because being able to manage Toronto, and that's one thing that I think Freddie Anderson has done really well, right? Like that's one thing he should get a lot of credit for is, is a big part of this equation as well. And it's it's one of those, it's a that's part of the equation that's really unique to not just that market. There are, there are a handful of markets that are the same way, but being able to manage that, that's part of the job, right? Like that is, it's a legit concern. Um, so, you know, how do you know? Uh, much smarter people than myself would have to figure that out. Probably I would have, I'd be having conversations with sports psychologists, frankly, if I could have that conversation before signing a guy, have my sports psych have, have that conversation. I would be frankly, the only other thing you can do is, has he had to do it before? Has he played in a market where the scrutiny has been that tough? Like, um, you know, so let's pick a name like Philip Grubauer, for example, played in a really good defensive environment in Colorado this year. So that kind of checks the box. At least he's used to a low event. But has he ever played in this spotlight? He, has he ever played under this type of glare? And probably he's going to price himself out of what the Leafs are looking at. I had a, I do have a question. So it's a really good point. One question for you. When you say Jack Campbell's going to continue this, what's this? Like what in your mind is this? Like what do you guys what do you guys see in there? Above average. I think league average under an above average environment is how I describe it. I don't know if I followed that, but I I sort of get it. <laughs> He's an average goalie playing in front of a team that limits shot quality very well. Okay, so him being average in front of a good defensive team will just inherently make him above average. Yes, his, yeah, exactly. Okay. Actually, I don't know if Ian saw some numbers if I shared them in the past, but he is uh, exactly point 
one above expected in, in save percentage last season. And I think if you were to look at the raw numbers, you'd be like, like the raw numbers tell you like what, like, like they're where top 10, top five. Yeah. That he's a really good goalie. 920. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. The, the adjusted numbers are like more like 29th, 30th. And again, that's not a criticism. You can only stop the yeah. shots you face. Like you only like the environment is what it is. You can't, it's not his fault he plays behind a good defensive team. And again, not every goalie can manage that. I also think he's made some really nice strides in his game. And, you know, I'm guilty of this as well. A lot of the discussion points around Jack, especially when he finally opened up about some of the things that he went through, um, you know, coming out of Dallas into the Kings and some of the dark places he went to and how Dusty Emu helped him out of that. Like that became the focal point of his evolution. I think a lot of... If you look at his game on the ice, it's evolved significantly in Toronto. And I think Steve Briere, the goalie coach there, doesn't get enough credit for some of the changes. Like, there's a lot less movement. There's a lot more control. His post play, there's a lot of really good elements in his game. So I, I really like Jack Campbell, and I think he's a really good fit for that team. I also think, like, I, like if you're, I don't know that anybody is blaming him for the playoffs. Like, he basically had no. one rough goal he in a seven-game well. series. Like, yeah, he was not the problem. We know who the problem is. Don't worry. We know. <laughs> the goals didn't go in. <laughs> yeah, this is not. This is, but, but at the same time, like you can say all these things, but this is not, like this isn't Vasilevsky Price, right? Like I don't think anybody's pretending that. It's just sometimes people look at the numbers and they're like, oh my God, like he's top five, he's top 10. And it's like, no, nah, man, like it's a little lower than that, but that's fine because a lot of goalies who might have more talent even than Jack wouldn't be able to perform as well behind that team because they're not necessarily any it's funny they used to be a hard team to play behind just because of the boatload of chances they gave up now they're harder to play behind for a different reason they're easier to play like they should be every goalie's dream to play behind a good defensive team it's not but not every goalie yeah not every goalie can do it if your kid's like 10 years old in triple a go put him on the worst team in the league and get him 50 shots a night and then when he hits like 13 14 put him on a good team let them get pucks See, I sucked as a goalie growing up, but one of my, my best experiences was playing summer hockey against kids in AAA. I was a house league goalie, but I was getting 50 shots a game. We were the worst team, and it was a lot of good practice. I, I got to get warm pretty quick in the first period. Well, Anthony, that's a good point about, like, and it's funny, we have that discussion. A lot of a lot of goalies that make the NHL will talk about those moments, and some of them active. I can't remember who we had on recently, actively talking about choosing that environment so that he wouldn't just be the kid padding his stats but doing nothing and how it played a big role in his development. The only crappy part about Canadian minor hockey is you get stuck on the bad team getting lit up and we we don't have clear sight analytics for like 11 and 12 year olds to show how hard the environment was. Yeah, what were my adjusted numbers that summer? I really want to know because I thought I did well. Ian, you were on the verge of going pro, buddy. <laughs> Listen, I'm looking for some of those in my beer league team. I can't be that bad. <laughs> Um, but honestly, like the problem in Canadian minor hockey is sometimes you get saddled with bad numbers, even though it was because of a bad team and you know how it is. You don't make her up one year. They never let you in the door again. So, but we digress. I think the Campbell point about him being average and I'll be the first one to say, like, I know very little about the technical aspect of goaltending. Any, any kid I've ever coached, that's a goalie. They know the only thing I would always say to them is I could tell you if you were too deep in your net, and I could tell you if you let in a crap goal. That's about the extent of, of what I know. But I think the, av- the average point about Jack Campbell is really interesting because 
speaking about that crap goal point, most of the times I watched, including his uh, 11 game win streak heater that he had, there were almost none of the games I ever came away and I was like, wow, Campbell stole them a win. Like basically the whole time it was just like, this guy didn't let in a bad goal. Like he just, he made the, he made the standard saves. The Leafs didn't give up much. He saved, you know, pretty standard shots. Like he didn't do anything crazy. And this is, I mean, this goes beyond the whole, the like goaltending of, of things. I just, I look at the Leafs and I think to myself, is that good enough for the Leafs? Because we know what the Leafs are like come playoff time. And I swear to God, through five years of losing in the first round, I can't think of a single pretty much game that a goalie has stole for them. Like, I can't think of a single win they've had. James Reimer, game five, game six against Boston way back in the day? That's 2013. That's way Oh, we're going way back. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, so you have to go to 2013 off. I know. I thought of him too. That's why I specifically (laughs) said the past five. But, like, I basically can't think of any. And then that kind of brings us full circle to the original goaltending point now where it's like is it good enough for goalies to just be average because it the league is everything is so tight parity wise but if you have a guy in net you're always competitive yeah no i mean that's it's 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 a fair point um i was just looking up the look yeah first of all like a couple of the names that we've talked about already like i think we talked about anti rent and how good he's been and, and darcy kemper's a name that gets a lot of attention you know, just to give Jack Campbell some credit here, um, he was slightly ahead of both of them this year. Like, if I look at the order in terms of expected save percentage to actual that ranking, it's Jack Campbell, then Darcy Kemper, and Antti Ranta. So, like, listen, being above expected means you're in the top half of the league. And those are two guys, especially Kemper, that I think people probably from a narrative and, and outside view would have ranked much higher. And his season in Arizona, another good defensive team, was about the same as Jack Campbell's. So um, got to be careful that we're not disparaging Jack Campbell with any of this talk. We're just, we're putting a, yeah. like there's there's tears here, right? Like there's your Vasilevskis of the world, your Kellebucks of the world. And even though Jack's got some raw numbers that match that, we're just sort of putting the perspective of, hey, this is a really good defensive team. Um, but again, don't diminish what he's done. Um, yeah, <laughs> At the end of the day, like, this is what salary caps do, right? Like, you got to make a tough decision. And um, I, I'll put it this way, and, and it's kind of going back and forth here. We've, we've talked about – if I had the right answer, right, like, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. I'd be, you know, if I could just pick the guy <laughs> to win a cup every year. I hope you'd still come talk to us, though. On principle alone, I hope you'd come. Of, co- of course. I just wouldn't be able to say anything, <laughs> right? Um <laughs> But like, like, think about it. Like, we talked about Vasilevsky. We talked about homegrown and all those things. Like, and yet, you know, one of the most respected goalie coaches in the game uh, over the past twenty years told me this last season. He's like, you know, give me true serum, and ask me if I would take uh, top three, like three great centers down the middle, a great top four on D, or a superstar number one goaltender. And every time I will tell you to give me a great top four on D and I will build you a goaltender that can win behind them. Barry Trotz would agree with that. So like as much as we talk about, um, you know, looking at Vasilevsky and looking at price and the cap hits and and their, their level and getting to the playoffs and what they getting to the final with those two, you know, I think there still is a mentality out there and it's not just an analytics mentality. That's an old school goalie coach talking about that, that, Hey, if you can build a system that supports a goaltender, you you don't need to have 
you know, you don't need to spend all that money on the goaltender himself. So, and yet, Andre Vasilevsky, two-time Stanley Cup champion, right? How many years <laughs> did we just run through where it's got to be a homegrown guy? So, um, I don't know that there's absolutes. Do you think the Leafs have anybody in the system that's a homegrown guy? I, and I don't know how familiar you are with their system, but, you know, some people are high on Joseph Wall. Some people you talk to think Ian Scott's actually really good. Um, he had a good career in the, the CHL for whatever that's worth. Uh, beyond that, like it's basically like prayed one of those two guys breaks through. I, I don't know if there's if there's much else out there in the in their system. Yeah, I, I'll be I'll be like full disclosure, Anthony. I I yeah, that's I fine. don't like to talk out. Of, I got yeah, I don't like to talk out of my ass. Um, and I haven't done my homework on either of those two guys. I've heard really good things about Joseph Wall. Sometimes when we get down into the you know, the farm teams and stuff. I'm, I'm relying on other people's opinions. Uh, I do know some people that Joseph works with, um, off the ice in terms of the mental game. Um, you know, he's invested in some technologies to get better. Like what I love about Joseph is I, what I've seen and I, and, and I got to see a little bit of him, um, of his game. I like, but he's also, and this is where the mentality part of things comes in. Like, I like no stone unturned guys. Like I like guys that are always looking for ways to get better. And I think the assumption from a lot of people is, aren't they all like that? And, and the truth is no, they're, they're not right. And, and actually some of them, like I know some that got, can get so wrapped up in always looking for something new or something different or something, you know, to add to their pregame, to get them ready to play that pretty soon they're exhausted before the puck drops or they're constantly chasing something else without ever really truly understanding their own foundation. So it's even a fine line there. But generally speaking, I like the guys that are always looking for ways to improve and Joseph Wall checks all those boxes. Ian Scott may may do the same. I just I just don't know him as well. I don't have the background. But Joseph's a guy I know who works with uh, John Stevenson, uh, who you know probably most famous for his work with uh, Braden Holpe and Carter Hart uh, as young goaltenders, um, but also works with like he's quietly got uh, some pretty big name pros uh, as well that he doesn't advertise uh, that he helps. And the fact that Joseph sought him out to me is uh, is a good sign. Kevin, you've been really generous with your time. I know that you need to take your daughter to work right now, so I'll just let you go because I want you to be a good dad here. But I can't, I, I can't get her fired, right? Like that's like the <laughs> ultimate bad dad. You're you're fired from your like high school summer job because dad couldn't get you there in time. Because dad was recording a podcast. Sorry. <laughs> you tell me the timing on this. If I ask you a question with one minute, it's cool. If you say you don't have the time, I got one. It, the question is okay. whether I can answer in one. As you've heard, I got a little verbal diarrhea in me. What do you think of Alexander Georgiev? Because he seems to be on the outs with the Rangers. They seem to really like Shosturkin. Do you think he's worth a team going out of their way to get? I am a big Georgie guy. His numbers and, and his numbers were better um, before this season. Like, and, and I guess that's the other question too. Like, like how much weight do we put into this season compared to other seasons? The David Quinn environment wasn't great for goaltenders. <laughs> yeah. He didn't give up a lot of low percentage goals. Um, that's a good thing. And we, we talked about that earlier and, you know, I mean, low percentage matters. Your, your team, uh, when you give up a low percentage goal, your team, unless the other guy at the other end reciprocates, your team loses 87% of those games. But those also tend to be the most random and noisy over larger samples. It's the high danger save percentage that tends to be more repeatable. And it's, um, well, it's funny because I think part of that is, well, we can get into how things are measured. 
on another podcast. Listen, I like Georgie. He's he's been consistently he dropped this year from a guy who was a full point above expected on save percentage early in his career. His private numbers are better than his public numbers. He was in a down year. He still had an adjusted save percentage that was better than Jack Campbell's, for example. It was it was like 25th, 26th, right in the same ballpark as Chris Dreger. And again, a guy who I don't think is going to command what Chris Dreger is going to on the open market, right? Like, like if you're looking for buy low options, that's a good one. Um, he plays in New York. He the spotlight's not Toronto. No, nothing is. But he understands the spotlight. He played with Henrik Lundqvist. He's so you know I, I haven't I, I don't have time to go through all his numbers and see. You know, you literally can. And if teams aren't doing this, they're insane. I'm sure the Leafs are. You can literally plug goalie into Team X and spit it out and see what it's going to look like. Is it actually going to be like that? No, there's too many. But it'll be a close estimation. Um, and and so if Georgie checks those boxes, I like everything else about him for sure. And I think his, like I said, his private numbers have been consistently in his NHL career, even after a down year this year, over the course of it in totality, have been, you know, a full point above expected, which would put him in the, you know, late teens to low 20s range overall. And that's that's not a bad place to be, especially when you do it year over year. Even in a down year, he was still, you know, a slight, notably above expected. You know, most guys in a down year, they're going to drop even below that. So that, to me, that's a pretty good sign. I, I test, this has become a game of east-west and patience on the skates. That's what you need in the NHL today uh, as a goaltender. As it becomes increasingly east-west, your ability to not commit too early to the ice is, in, is that's become one of those factors that separates. And Georgie is so good at holding his eds, edges and, and maintaining his edges and not committing to his knees too early. Um, he's not the biggest goaltender, but he makes up for it with his patience. And so for all those reasons, yeah, if you could have at him at a low price point, uh, I think he'd be a good fit. All right, Kevin, we'll let you go. I think that was longer than a minute, but hey, I love it when you ramble because good stuff usually comes from it. So we'll let you go, man. But, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people check out your work real quick? Uh, just, uh, Kevin is in goal is, uh, the Twitter handle and pretty much anything in goal magazine. Uh, we have a, it's a subscription product. If you're not a goalie, it's probably not for you. If you are a goalie of any age, um, you know, we literally, I just, before we did this podcast, I had Alex Nedeljkovic on for an hour and a half breaking down video of saves he made. We share those once a week. We do pro reads. We've had Carrie Price, Freddie Anderson, where they watch the video and explain they're thinking. So I think that helps young goalies learn how to not just be a goalie school goalie where they know where the puck is going. They can learn to read the game. Um, we have drills from guys like Carey Price, a uh, bunch of NHL goalie coaches that I have video of their NHL goalies working, shared the tips to the drills. Uh, Jason LaBarbera, David Riddick did a few. Um, so pretty much like the only place you can find um, lessons and tips and drills from NHL goaltenders, ingoalmag.com. Check it out. And that's why I love your work. It's in-depth stuff. So thanks so much, Kevin. Drive your daughter to work already. She's probably yelling at you. I go quickly now. (laughs) See you guys. Thanks. (laughs) Sounds good, bud. Have a good one. You too. Thank you so much. What a guy. Big fan of Kevin Woodley over here. I think I'm a big fan of Georgia right now. And 
if you remember last year in the off season, some of the talk about what he might cost was like absolutely insane. Kasperi Kapanen at the time. I'm trying to remember. This was back in those Twitter days. Darren Drager was tweeting up a storm. I forget, but it was not fun. I don't know if I'm losing it, but I feel like at one point I, I remember somebody saying Nylander and I could just be losing it. So that's entirely possible. <laughs> it's not too far fetched for this market. But it's funny. It's kind of like I'm talking on my ass in circles because at on one hand I say Brassois, like the guys barely played in the league. But then on the other hand, I'm like Georgiev. But the difference to me is I, I think I think Georgiev could be a stud. I've got a question for you, Anthony. After 39 minutes, or let's call it 40 now of listening to Kevin Woodley, go into some of the deeper, not just numbers, but some of the eye test stuff that comes with the position. Who do you want the Leafs to sign or trade for this offseason? So if the price was low, like I just said, I would be interested in Georgiev because I, I think that he could actually be a stud goalie. Whereas I think most of the guys that are available on the free agent market are like they're available for a reason. Like they're good, but they're not great goalies. And I think Georgiev has a chance to be a great goalie. So that really intrigues me because I don't know how many chances the Leafs are going to have to actually get a great goalie at a potentially cost-controlled price. Going through the Stanley Cup champions, like you mentioned, as much as I love bringing up a Chris Osgood or an anti uh, Niemi back in Chicago, it's a good point that most teams do have an above-average goalie when they win a Stanley Cup. It's, it's really... And especially for... I mean, we've been poking fun at them for probably a month now about the Leafs being the Leafs but they really are like if like like they need a guy to steal them a game once in a while and Campbell's been good and Campbell you could maybe argue stole one of the games against Montreal but I wouldn't say that he stole the game I would just say he was like really really good and I'd love to pretend I was super smart here for having that Jack Campbell opinion, but you know why I had that opinion? Is because me and Kevin Woodley will DM or he'll rant. I'll, I'll be like, hey, what have you got this week for me? Like, you know, just for fun. And he'll be like, hey, fun stat. Jack Campbell's actually been league average this year. And I'm like, what? And he explains the context behind it. I just remember pretty much after every game that he played, Alec Declan and I here at the little hot stove crew would message each other and we would just say, like, he just didn't let in a shit one. That has value, though. I mean, I love bringing that up. It's good to not let those in. Freddie was letting them in. Jonathan Bernier, in some of those dark times, there were some bad goals. Yeah, and and now I kind of sit, and and this is a habit I've tried to make a little bit more, like to do it more often, especially in the offseason, is to actually kind of like go back at notes I've taken or whatever that were happening during the season to kind of get my mindset back into what was actually happening. I've done the same thing. I'll reread a report card and half the time I'll go, what the hell were you thinking? But <laughs> sometimes it's nice to reread in the moment. Even beyond that, I think people like they'll just sit there and they're they're basically doing what Kevin just said. They look at his numbers and they're like, Campbell was sick. And he was good. Like I said, like we're not trying to take anything away from him. He was good and he steadied the net for them, which was very significant. The shutout that he had in the playoffs was a team shutout. I don't remember too many big saves that he made in that game. And I think that's a testament to TJ Brody, Jake Muzzin, the Leafs' entire core buying in defensively. As much as we're frustrated at Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, they stepped it up defensively this year. And and they've logged too many minutes. But in those minutes, they weren't allowing quality chances against. And that definitely matters. I, I remember getting a little bit of heat in the comments for not writing too much about Campbell's shutout. And I just said, like, I didn't think that he made any really good saves. Like, I just thought he did his job, and it just turned out that 
by saving like pretty basic chances he ended up getting a shutout because of it which kudos to him I just I didn't think it was even remotely within the top five most interesting things that happened in the game so I just I didn't say much so then he kind of like looked back and it's really interesting so we we were arguing about just to shift gears at a goaltending for a little bit um we were arguing about the Travis Dermott contract a little bit (laughs) right of course we were and the interesting thing is I, I think that there well there's two main points I want to make about it and the main the main thing that kind of started this all is I I said for those of you who don't follow me on Twitter which I totally get um like it always feels like the Leafs just they give guys a little bit extra money than they really really needed to and that's not to say that Dermot isn't a good player I think he'll easily be worth that money and it's not that he's drastically overpaid it's that you're doubling his contract value no it would be stupid to sit there and say, like, he's not going to be worth that money. I, he is going to be worth that money. That, of that, I have no doubt. I just think they could have grinded him down, like, at $200,000. And I think you could make that argument about, like, 20 guys on this roster. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, because I kind of take it within context. And the other point I was going to make just before I get to this is, it's possible that Seattle just said, sign him to this deal and we'll pick him. And in which case, the whole thing is a moot point, at least on Dermot. But the interesting, interesting thing is, you look at the Leafs, and... For the first time in a long time, there's really no, like, boat anchor contract. Like, there's no god-awful contract. Although, you could mate, like, I don't know how to say this nicely. Just say it. I think Mitch Marner's overpaid by, like, 2 to $3 million, and that's huge. Well, yeah, I mean, you compare him to Rantanen and Sebastian Ajo and his comps at the time, and that was always the case. So, we sit there, we can sit here and say, like, there's no, like, terrible contract, but, like, by the same token and percentage, like if TJ Brody was making like, I don't know what the math of how that would factor out, but if TJ Brody was making six mil and change instead of five, I don't think anyone would sit there and be like sick contract all of a sudden. It'd probably be like, uh, he's actually like notably overpaid. They'd start bringing up his point totals. Yes, which you know that you you say that in jest because I brought that up and just said he was a 20 point player playing a ton of ice, t- like playing a ton. And I get what his role is. I'm just saying... His margin for error, if if he stops being as good as he's been defensively, like even a little bit, then you kind of squint and go, okay, well, is this worth it? But he's not there yet. We'll bring it back to goaltending in a second here. But on the Dermot thing, I don't want to become a parody of myself by just pumping this guy's tires as if I'm his agent. But uh, the one thing I like about a two-year deal instead of a one-year deal is that I think we can all see that there's still some upside there with Dermot. I don't think he's reached his peak as a player yet. I think there's clearly some tools, some things that you can't teach that he can do, whether it's going back on a loose puck and shaking the first four checker or playing a tight gap in the neutral zone. It's very difficult to teach players who can't do those things to do those things. So the fact that he can do them is definitely a plus. The frustrating aspect with Dermott is that he doesn't turn any of that into offense. And you'd think that he would be able to with some of his skating ability, some of his puck moving ability. You'd think that it would lead to more quality chances when he's on the ice. And for whatever reason, it doesn't. I'm wondering if in Seattle, when he maybe becomes the go guy on a second pair and plays with a stable defensive partner, I'm wondering if maybe the offensive production starts to show up a bit. And not even just individually, but at the team level, does his team get more quality chances when he's on the ice? Because right now, he's basically a low event player. He plays a lot like uh, the Toronto's bottom six and that when he's on the ice, the other team doesn't get many opportunities for and the Leafs don't get many opportunities for because Dermot's just standing behind his own net with the puck chilling. And I don't know if that's the best strategy. 
one thing I will present to you anecdotally, and you can feel free to go back and let me know what you think about this after you sit on it. I don't think he does enough in the middle of the ice. I don't think he does enough between the dots. Bat, like Players who do nothing offensively skate between the face-off dots and the boards. Players who create things offensively skate between the face-off dots. And that's especially true in the neutral zone. And whenever I think of Dermot skating up the ice, I think of him skating right along the left side wall. And you can't do anything. Like, if you play players that are worse than you, and Dermot's good, but he's not, like, that good where he has, like, a talent gap or advantage against NHLers. You're talking about transporting the, the puck up the ice, right? Like, creating off the rush. Yeah. If you play against players that are inherently worse than you, but they understand how to angle, which most guys in the NHL do because they're in the NHL, you can't do anything. A surprising number of defensemen don't. A surprising number of defensemen just back up and back up and back up. But you can do that, basically, if the guy's skating down the boards. Like, you can't do anything. Like, you, like you're not creating. You, you have to have a move to get inside. And frankly, this is a TJ Brody frustration where even though he's stellar defensively, you'd think with his speed and his skating ability, he'd be able to create a bit more when he got the opportunity to jump up into the play. And much like Dermot, Brody's kind of a defensive specialist. And it's weird. You don't think of guys with that kind of skating and smooth aspect to their play with the puck on their stick. You don't think of them as defensive specialists. But because of their inability to create off the rush, and like you say, use the middle of the ice as, a, as an alleyway for offense, it kind of turns them into a defensive specialist. Are you more or less convinced now that the Leafs are going to expose Dermot? I've accepted this a long time ago. I'm already cheering for him on Seattle. I'm just letting you know that uh, I don't think it's the right move. I don't think it's the right decision. And I, again, that's a shocker that I would say that his agent on Twitter, who doesn't tweet anymore... I can't get over giving up on a guy that young for uh, Justin Hall. I'd rather expose Kerfoot and save the money, or I'd rather expose Justin Hall, who, by the way, even though he's done well with Jake Muzzin, so has every other NHL defenseman. And I'm not sure that that has anything to do with Justin Hall's ability or if it's just a testament to how good Jake Muzzin is. You still save money. Like, if you... uh... If if they take Hole and then you promote Dermot a little bit, I mean, you're still saving half a mil. I mean, it's not even a full player, but it's something. What Justin Bourne would say is that you pay that half mil because you know Justin Hall works there. Yep. Whereas the uncertainty, if Dermot doesn't work there, oh crap, now you're screwed. Now you need to give up an asset for a defenseman on the trade market. Maybe that half a million's worth it just for the certainty of, if nothing else, Justin Hall can play alongside Jake Muzzin. But if you're the Leafs, and it, it's funny because we're talking about the defense, which was definitely not their problem. It's so weird talking about that, by the way, because over yeah. the last five years, this has been an offensive juggernaut who needs to learn how to defend. Now they learned how to defend, and we're trying to figure out how to get them more goals. If if you lose Hole, do you just sit there and go, I'm going to play TJ Brody with Jake Muzzin, and that's my shutdown pairing, and that's a real good shutdown pairing? Again, I've, I've always liked the idea of that, but... Morgan Riley and TJ Brody worked so well that it's almost it's hard to split that up if you're keeping Morgan Riley, and I assume they are. Again, that's that's another conversation. Maybe that's more of an off-season topic. I mean, it would be interesting to dig into because there were long stretches where we were even saying on this podcast that those two were not getting great results. And I was worried, especially because the this Corsi, the shots, whatever you want to call it, it was at 49%. They were getting outshot, but the quality of those shots was so consistently high offensively and so consistently low against. They weren't giving up many high-danger chances against. I worry when that happens that 
it's hard to sustain a difference that large. You're not going to have a 60% XG and a 50% Corsi over a lar large sample. It just doesn't happen. But TJ Brody's ability to take away middle ice and take away passes through the middle of the ice on two-on-ones, I think that is repeatable. And I think as much as Morgan Riley frustrates me at times, his ability to create passes through the middle of the ice and chances from the middle of the ice as a threat in the offensive zone, Dom brought it up last week, I think that's a repeatable trait. So... They're, to an extent, they always are going to outperform their shot metrics. They're, they are going to generate shot quality, and TJ Brody's going to prevent shot quality. But I guess what you're wondering is, does the Brody-Riley pairing, I guess if we call it the, the Riley-Brody pairing, because Brody plays on the right side, is that the way to maximize results on the least blue line? And you're wondering if tinkering with things might be a way to, to, to help the team improve a little bit. And the other thing I would pose to you is, were Riley and Brody like good together because they had good chemistry like and they did anything sick and like they actually made each other better or was it just like i think there was a yin yang to it but i don't think a yin yang makes anybody better i think i think it was like riley played to like a 52 point pace it wasn't like he lit the league on fire offensively like he wasn't there were many games where i was like this guy's not particularly dynamic or overly joining into the rush like were they just two guys that were paired together and one guy just inherently hung back a little bit more and the other guy was inherently a little bit more offensive and then it kind of like stabled you know it stabilized to having slightly above average results or like are they actually a good pair where you're like back in the day you're like yeah this is like Keith and Seabrook and like these guys just are actually sick together I think if I'm Sheldon Keith right now I would love to have Jake Muzzin or TJ Brody on the ice for 80% plus of the game. To me, that means that I've got one guy out there who's going to be back, who's going to be defending a two-on-one, who's not going to get caught. Three-on-twos, I can trust him to make the right decision as the last man back. And if I put them both on the ice at the same time, who am I going to have on that second pair? Is, is it going to be a Dermot there? I don't, I don't trust a Riley-Dermot pairing as much as I love the idea of it. One of the, they're both going to pinch at the wrong time, or is Dermot the last man back? As much as I love Travis Dermot, do you trust him as the last man back more than you do with a Brody or a Muzzin? I mean, I guess that's what Dermot's ceiling is, is a guy who you actually do trust in that situation, but right now, I don't think you do, and I think that's the problem. So you brought up you brought up Sheldon Keefe, but it's not actually Sheldon Keefe. The Leafs just hired a new assistant coach. The guy with that awesome face. who's been, it's, it's the one picture has been showing up online everywhere. I don't think there's any other pictures of him online. Interestingly, though, I'm actually quite high on this hiring. I mean, Carolina's penalty kill has been fantastic for a few years now. He has run that. Uh, they're super aggressive at the blue line. How much of that is personnel versus system? So particularly interesting on that is, well, I mean, do you think Brock McGinn is sick? Because that's who leads their forwards in time on ice shorthanded. Sebastian Ajo doesn't get a bunch of those minutes. He Steve does, but he's, get in there. he's third. Usually those guys are like a second pairing. Doesn't Jacob Slavin lead the league in penalty kill time on ice? Their defense is, their defense is very good. That's why I'm a little bit more hesitant to bring up their defense because, I mean... I think most people could put their hands in their pocket and coach that defense competently. The game against the David Ayers, as, as, as frustrated as we get as Leafs fans, that's a defensive stalwart performance from Slavin and Pesci, if I've ever seen one. And those are two guys who can kill a penalty. Those guys are very good. But interestingly, the 
So I mentioned Brock McGinn, and last week when Dom was here, I mentioned Jordan Martinuk in a comment that probably everybody threw away. I actually really like Jordan Martinuk. I think he's a good, he's kind of Daniel Winnicky for me. He's not as good as Prime Winnick, but he's the same kind of mold where he's grindy, uh, but like he can handle a puck and skate. He can forecheck. Great puck retriever in the offensive zone, Zach Hymany kind of. Can't finish, so that's very similar to Daniel Winnick. And I love Daniel Winnick. Daniel Winnick was like, one of my favorites of like as a grinder of that time. He was the eternal second round pick. Gotta love Daniel Winnick. He was he was a good player, man. But both so both Marnuk and McGinn are pending UFAs. Both of those guys he's leaned on heavily on the penalty kill the past few years in Carolina. I think it would be interesting to for the Leafs to I mean, I already mentioned Marnuk as a guy, but you know, to me, if you're a new coach and you could bring on, a, you know, I mean, those guys aren't like gritty old veterans. They're like 27, 28 years old, but they've been around the league. They know his system. They could lead a special teams unit and, you know, lead by example. When we talk about I, like everyone's talk, I just continue to go back to this. Like everyone just says, oh, like, what do you do now with the Leafs? And I'm like, they need to find more value and substance from like what they're getting on some of their guys in the bottom six like I just you can't look back at guys there and be like this guy just doesn't do anything I mean that's been one of the things they say they like is oh the low event players you know looking for a Riley Nash the idea of someone who does nothing when he's out there I don't I don't think you can have two lines of low event I think you could have one line of low event and then your Spezza line that actually tries to score yeah, you need three lines that can actually put the puck in the net. Dom brought up the idea of having a Spezza third line instead of a Spezza fourth line. And I kind of like the idea of it, honestly. I'm intrigued with it. The Leafs just are loath to give him ice time, it seems. It seems like they think they have a number in mind as to how much he should play. 11 or 12 minutes a night, and no back-to-backs. Yeah, like what did? how much did he play when he had the hat trick? 10 minutes? Like, I don't even know if he hit 10 minutes. Like, I, Well, I, I post those charts after every game, and I was so used to seeing his number be... 9, 10, 11. It was small most of the time. Think about games like where, you know, Matthews or Tavares were missing and they move up Alex Kerfoot to the 2C. And Alex Kerfoot was good in the playoffs, but let's not miss, let's not forget what happened and what he looked like in the regular season. Joe Thornton in the top six. Yeah. And it's like these guys move up, but, but never Spezza. So we've said it till we're blue in the face, just a little bit more. But what I... What I'm interested in, and it's also kind of interesting because Carolina's Tampa ate up Carolina's PK a little bit in the playoffs. I mean, Tampa does that. To be fair, not to what's the your system to defend the ta- Tampa's power play? I mean, whatever the Habs did because they actually did put Carey Price in net. Yeah. Well, you think <laughs> Carey Price was the? I don't think he was the difference on no, it. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> the interesting thing is, and I have a note for what I think the Leafs should learn from uh, Tampa's power play which is goes beyond the shooters to mention just shortly but mention it now i'm curious one thing that tampa does really well is they they shrink the offensive zone How, what do you mean when you say that because I, I have i have an idea what you mean but just to explain it to the average listener the the main thing to look at and this pisses me off to no end is if morgan riley or rasmus sandine they're at the top of the power play unit and their feet can almost touch the blue line that is such a waste of time. But if you watch Victor Hedman consistently, he's almost at the top of the circle. Yep. Which makes him a shooting threat because he's close enough to beat a goalie. Take the free space, man. Say thanks. 
You know, you know the Billy, you like Billy Bean, you like Moneyball, you know, and he's like, say thanks, man, take it. <laughs> right in the movie. Say thanks. They're giving you free space. They're just giving it to you. Just move your ass up. Five on three power plays where the t players at the top are close to the blue line. I'm yeah. ripping out my hair because I'm going, there's so much space. Go to the dots. <laughs> the Leafs do that a lot too. And if you watch Colorado, they're another one. It's like McCarr's right, McCarr's right top of the circle. And then five on threes, it's crazy. It's like McKinnon and Rantanen are cheating as low as they possibly can get to as long as they can, you know, maintain a space dynamic. And those guys are just standing there just beaver tapping their sticks and like waiting with it up in the air. And they're like, one of us is going to absolutely murder this puck from a basically a distance that should be illegal for an NHLer to absolutely tee off from. So if we bring this back to the Leafs, if let's say for fun, Rasmus Sandin gets most of the PP one time next year, you don't want him at the blue line. You want him 10 feet in even maybe even more 15 feet in as much as you possibly can, man. The, the thing that I would bring back to you and we've talked about that, like, this is really what the Leafs need to decide. It's like, if they want to hand Sandine the power play, like if they want to hand him the keys to the power play, and to some degree the way that they deployed him on the in the playoffs kind of indicates that they want to. At, at the minimum, With they their would like season to. on the line, he was there. What's the point of Riley? And this is my point. His next contract, you don't want to pay him for the PP1 points he gave you in years past if he's not that guy anymore. And I still think he's a great offensive player. I'm just thinking of this in terms of asset management. You have this guy who all this past performance was awesome, but now you're going to pay him for future performance, and I don't think he's going to do that for you anymore. It's not because I hate him. It's not because I think he's a bad dude. I actually think he's one of the nicest players on the roster. I mean, if you look at his public persona, he just seems like a great guy. I just don't want to pay $6.5 million for him over the next seven years. So if I had to boil down the Leafs' questions for the offseason right now, it would basically be... And we talked about this in the first half with Kevin. Who's their goalie? Like, who's going to be the guy that they bring in to go alongside Campbell? Who's 1B, I guess? Because we know 1A. And interestingly, I would say, is Campbell the 1A? Is that written in permanent marker? Ooh, you're, you're wondering if they can bring in someone to displace him as... Well, I just think based on his last, let's call it, I don't know, how many, how many games did he play in the playoffs plus whatever he played in the regular season? It was very strong. Yeah, he was good. I just... I'd be interested if they viewed it like that. Last 29 games, 22 in the season, 7 in the playoffs. He was a 934 in the playoffs and a 921 in the regular season. And like we said with uh, with Kevin Woodley on, there was some context in there that helped him a lot. There, there weren't too many dangerous chances, but he did well enough that I think it's his net heading into next year. But I'd love to see someone who could push him out. It would be it would be very interesting because that dynamic between Reimer and Bernier I thought was just toxic and not because of those two guys just because of the cloud the way the the fan base kind of took sides. Isn't it naturally going to be like that? It's just, it's awful though like it's really really negative and like I want to be clear it has nothing to do with the players. I think Reimer's a awesome dude. Um, you know, I have nothing bad to say about Bernier. Well-dressed man. I I don't think I had anything to do about either of those two personalities. I just think the cloud that it brought around it was really, really bad. So I, I don't know if the Leafs are giving that any thought because that wasn't necessarily something that Dubas lived through, right? But the way that that kind of went down, like to me, if you bring in a guy like Georgiev, it's almost like, it's sort of like that. It's sort of like when the Raptors brought in Kyle Lowry when they had Jose Calderon and... You know, Lowry wasn't that good at the start, so then they, they were starting Calderon, and then it created this, like, awkward 
situation where eventually they were like, fuck it, we're just giving him, we're just giving the team to Lowry. Like, we don't even care. Like, it, it's not even based on merit. It's just like, this is the younger guy and the guy that we believe in. That's Garrett Sparks over McElhaney. It's the same kind of decision-making process. Yeah. Right? That, that Don't get me started on the Sparks thing. <laughs> but this, like that whole, I can't, I can't. I'm sorry I brought it up. That was that was too mean. I apologize. But But they could create that kind of dynamic, right? Whereas if they, if they bring in like, I wonder if that's some of their reasoning. I meant to talk about this while Kevin was still here, but I wonder if that's some of the reasoning why they would entertain a Freddie return. I'm wondering if he's got a one-year prove-it deal to say, I'm way better than that. You know I'm better than that. I know I'm better than that. Let me prove to the open market that I'm better than that. And I, I wonder, too, to that degree, if they would sit there and go, this is a dynamic that we trust in this market. Like, we, we like, inherently know that we can work with these two guys as a tandem and kind of figure it out. And it's not like too, too, too much. Like if you bring in Allmark, like you don't think Allmark wants to start? I think any professional athlete wants to start. Yeah. I'd be shocked if there's a professional athlete out there who said, you know what? I'd rather sit on the bench. This is more fun. Well, I want to phrase that correctly because yes, does like Curtis McElhaney want to start? Of course he does. But does he understand his role and is accepting of it? Great comparison. Great, great example. I don't think Allmark would accept it. Like I think he would be upset. And I don't know him as a human. I'm just saying, like, if I'm him, I should I should phrase it that way. If I was him and I'm not starting, I'm upset. And that's how you cause problems. I was outside this weekend and got massively sunburned. So I can relate to Frederick Anderson here. So let me play the role of Frederick Anderson real quick as a fellow ginger-bearded man. I just had the worst year of my career after four-plus seasons of stellar goaltending. I know I'm a top-ten goalie in the NHL. Why would I take term in the open market here right now when I've already made a fair bit of money in the NHL? I want to prove to myself that I can do this. So I want to come back, whether it's here for one year or I want to go to the New York Islanders for one year. I want to go somewhere for one year and post a 920 save percentage and then sign a five-year deal in, in UFA and, and get my kids into college and everything. But I just for him, I don't, I don't think it makes sense to sign a long-term deal right now if you're Frederick Anderson. I guess, I guess my question if I was Dubis, and so you you say, well, I think I'm a top goalie. And I go, well, I mean, you weren't last year, and I mean, you're only as good as what you've done for me lately, so I would fight you on the top 10 thing for sure. Well, uh, Dubis, you're a numbers guy. You know that sample size matters more than anything with goaltending. Of course. I actually think I like Anderson a little bit more than most people do in this market. But the thing I would probably pose to him is what situation is better than this? Like, where are you going? Like, are you going to go to Buffalo back in our division and be like, okay, you want to go to Buffalo? You want to play us six, seven times a year and then Tampa and then Boston and then the Habs and even the Sens who are probably better than you guys and they're going to trade Jack Eichel? What if I sign for way less than I'm, that I know I'm worth to put myself in a good situation to get a bag? But where could he do that? I'd need to do a bit more research if I'm Frederick Anderson and talk with my agent and looking at the potential options, but I think you could find a situation. Like if the guy, if if for some reason Seattle had their heart set on him, Seattle seems to be like the great white hope of, like, I find this hilarious. Like Seattle is like the great white hope of uh, this player could go here and like turn his life around. I mean, it's such a unique example because they're going to have decent players. They're not going to have amazing players, but they're going to have decent players who get to play in a bigger role that they probably deserve to play in. But who cares? That's like every team. I think the only thing that happened in Vegas, there were two things that happened with Vegas. Like, let's 
Let's talk lessons learned with Vegas expansion. Uh, this is a great topic, by the way, because there are a few things we should really take out of it. There's a lot of guys that can play in the league that just need a, a better opportunity. I think that's very clear. Nate Schmidt, Shea Theodore, Braden McNabb. Alex Tuck. Alex Tuck's a great one. Right. Jonathan Marcheseau, but he did that in the previous spot. And then that's that's the second part to it, which is teams have like like legitimate stars, and they're just not paving the way for them the way that they should, right? Like, like Jonathan Marshall was a star, and he was on Florida, and they they should have been invested. He scored thirty goals, and they exposed him because they thought Riley Smith had a bad contract. Anaheim should be sick to their stomach that they lost Shea Theodore to protect Sammy Vatanen absolutely disgusted i think that that's a fireable offense of the highest order it's a bad one like when we look back and but then but now when people look and i think i think seattle's in a lot tougher of a spot and i've done the expansion draft thing with their with their lineup and seen how it goes and who are the best players that you're grabbing hmm <laughs> it's a that's a very tough question i have a dermot pairing with uh dylan Demello that i like do you think Mark Giordano can still play? Do you think Michael Backlund can still play? I know like those guys are both on Calgary, so I know you're just going to get one. I'm wondering what kind of draft equity you can get. Right. Because, again, my biggest takeaway, you talked about lessons that you we got from the Vegas expansion draft. I think it's this. You're going to lose one player. Don't overthink it. Give up your fourth best defenseman or your eighth best forward. Just, it's happening. But if you start giving up assets so that they take this guy instead of this guy, or you start making trades, oh, we're going to trade away this guy now because we need to set ourselves, you're still going to lose one player. And if you start doing all that other stuff, then you're losing multiple pieces, multiple assets. Just bite the bullet, lose the player that it's going to hurt a little bit to lose, but don't give up on that guy with potential. Don't, get, don't give up a first-round draft pick because you're afraid of losing your fourth-best defenseman. That's not a good idea. The other thing I'd like to point out from the whole Vegas thing, and to me, I thought that people should have learned this lesson. And this is why, like, I know people roll their eyes when I talk about guys like Jordan Marnuk and Brock McGinn. But these are guys that have played in the league and they know how to play in the league. And the team that I thought should have shown people this lesson is, I don't know if you remember, but the 2011-2012 Phoenix Coyotes at the time went to the conference finals. And Mike Smith was sick. But if you look at their roster, it's like... In my head, I'm trying to come up with it right now. I'm like, Shane Doan's got to be there. Ray Whit Ray Whitney and Redeem Verbata were on it. Redeem Verbata ripped off a 35-goal season. He was just strangely very good in, in Phoenix. He was subtly awesome for a few years there. Keith Yandel was 24 and coming along. And then it's just like, their whole team was basically just like vets. Like, just guys that know how to play in the league. And, and people inherently know this. They inherently know that veteran teams go far like we and you see it in almost every circumstance right like world juniors the older teams win oh come on team north america was pretty awesome they were so fun man i told you a number of times i went to that sweden thing game they were super fun wait the those no, sweden uh the sweden team north, north america. america game the whole like mckinnon yeah. toe drag like the sickest one of the best games ever, ever. yeah so I, I was there it was unreal but I'm jealous at the end of the day this is where people like 
idealize, right? They sit there and go, like, if this just young guy, just figure if Nick Robertson comes in and he's sick, like, you just need guys that know how to play in the league, but you need them throughout your roster. Can I give you a solid counter-argument? Because that's what Ken Holland is telling himself. That's why he's trading for Duncan Keith, and it's a terrible idea. No, that one's stupid, and you know I laughed at that trade the second it happened. I know, I know, but my point is that you're going to overvalue the idea of veteran leadership. And does it matter? Yes. Should you value it over playing ability? I get worried. No, of course not. But I'm not talking about leadership. I don't give a shit. I'm talking <laughs> about guys that know how to play in the league and make a contribution. Like guys who figure it out, right? Like I look at, like if I'm going back to that Phoenix team, it's like like Boyd Gordon, like he knows how to play in the league. He's a specialist, but he has a role. I hear what you mean. Right? Vegas at the same time was the same role, right? They, have, they had Belmar. The guy knew his role. Like he guy knew the guy knew how to play in the league. He's just like, this is what I do. And then who signed him and who's he done a good job for? Colorado. Another smart team. Same time, you don't want to overpay those guys. You gotta understand the market. Yeah, to some degree, Colorado probably has overpaid him. But you get some value of just bringing in a guy. It's the same way that we just talked about with McElhaney and with goalies. Like guys who are just like, This is my role and this is what I need to do. And if I'm not doing it, I've got a problem. And sometimes this is the issue I have with these veteran guys who were once very good, but they're not as good as they were. And there's like, they're in like a strange go between like Wayne Simmons to me, if you're not hitting everything that moves, you like, you're just, you don't have it for me. Like that's your role. The fact that he had zero fights in the playoffs for me, and it's funny because I'm the analytics nerd who's, who cares more about his play driving numbers than his fights. But if he didn't drop the gloves once, I don't see what he's really doing because isn't that kind of his role? I think it was game four and he crushed Gallagher. And that was it. Like that was about the only hit of no. A momentum swing moment. I do wonder that if Wayne Simmons is playing in front of fans in Toronto, he probably has a bigger impact, right? Because that's his entire role is to create energy. But what I respect about a guy like Corey Perry is that guy was a literal superstar in the league. Like, like he led the league in goals. Like he was disgusting. Won the heart trophy. Here he is, and he's a shadow of himself. But what's he sat there and done? He's just like, this is how I'm going to contribute to games now. Like, I'm just like, I'm going to do what I did, but to a lesser degree, and just focus on the things that I'm still physically capable of doing. Like, I'm just going to go to the net and be a piece of shit. Going to go hard to the net. I'm going to piss people off. Right? He's just like, I know my two things. I'm just going to go to the net. I'm going to piss people off. And that's it. Like, that's all I'm going to bring. But I'm just going to do it really well. And I'm just going to do it shift after shift. Would have much preferred Corey Perry to Wayne Simmons, by the way. A hundred percent. But when we talk about, you know, like blue in the face now, right? But like, like that to me, like Joe playing on power play one is just like not understanding his role, which is on the coaching staff too. Exactly. That's on the coaching staff. But it's a little bit of both because I think that he played a role in that. And I think, you know... There was definitely a promise of sorts that he was going to play on line one just to come here. And he shouldn't even have had to accept that. The guy, like, you're 41 and you haven't won a cup. I would have just been like, I'm happy to be here. I'll do whatever I, it takes. Converse, compare that to a guy like Spezza, who that quite literally is his attitude. He's like, I'm happy to be here. I will do what you guys tell me to do. You want me to take face-offs on the penalty kill? Fucking take face-offs on the penalty kill. You want me to play nine minutes a night with Jimmy VC and Travis Boyd? That's what I'm doing. Doesn't say shit. Doesn't any promises. Give me the vet minimum. I'm just here to win. But like you need guys to have that buy-in. I just, I don't know. So that's why I look at a guy like Jordan Martin, who can I just sit there and go, this guy's just going to come in and he knows his role. He's going to sit there and play and say, 
Put me on the penalty kill. I'm just going to forecheck. That's it. But he'll be good at it. I want to put a bow on this conversation because we're a minute, or not a minute, we're an hour 14 into this conversation, and you brought up the 2011-2012 Phoenix Coyotes. I don't want to talk about that. I want to quickly talk about some goalies. Who's your guy? My guy is Linus Olmark. I, I brought him up with Kevin. I said that's the guy that I've kind of circled on a piece of paper. I've gone, I like the save percentage over the last few years despite being in a rotten set of circumstances. The injury concerns scare me, as they should with any goalie. But I think we have a decent sample with him. We have 117 games of him being an average to above average NHL goaltender. I like that, and I think he's going to go for less on the open market than a Drieger will, than a uh, other goalies that we brought up in this podcast. Uh, Grubauer will go for than even someone like Petter Morazic, who's weirdly become a bigger name. I, I do wonder what some of these guys go for. Drieger is high on my list. What are your thoughts on Drieger? He's someone I'm, I'm a big fan of. I like him. I think if you sign him, it's basically one of the two of you is going to, like, it's a 50-50 until one of you just takes the net. And I think that's what you want if you're the Leafs right now. Yeah, I worry about the lack of vet, like, having, like, a vet and, like, a like a real vet goalie. Can Jack Campbell be your vet? No. Like, I think you need, like, a real vet. That's kind of why I've started to lean Mrazek of late. I've been, like, pretty big on Drieger coming in but now that i'm like the more that i've like thought about it i'm like i don't know if, if i can i wouldn't i mean i don't think i would sleep well no matter what but i don't know if i would sleep well with like that like that tandem could blow up in your face like the guys played in the league for a year like that could goaltending is is voodoo it's a weird year it was a shortened season like that that's a tough one my only concern with Morazic is the injuries because he is a good goalie if there's any sort of price tag on him, I wouldn't pay it. But if if you could get him at like a good number as a good vet, like a guy who can push Campbell, but a guy who I don't think would be problematic if, if Campbell was running with it, which I kind of think is sort of their thinking on Anderson. My only thing with Allmark would be like, has he played a single big game in this in his in this league? I mean, that's that's the thing when you're getting guys from Buffalo. That's the <laughs> toughest thing, right? Like you sit there and you just go like, it's not like minor hockey where, like, the, the gap between, like, the shit teams where I said, like, go play on a shit team and get 50 shots a night. But the gap between, like, a bad minor hockey team and, and, a, and a good team, like, it's way different. Like, the, it's not even close. He played professionally in Sweden. You play some big games there. Do those count? International events? I don't know. The, the pressure is different. So, I mean, you never know the answer until you see it. Like, the guy could just go to a good team and, and be sick and everyone will sit there and be like, well, the signs were all there in Buffalo. And that'll be true. But... I just, I don't know. Maybe I talk myself out of it and I get into my own head with that kind of thinking. I just, I worry about a guy who hasn't actually had to play any big games in the league. Like the pressure is way different. I think for once there's a plug and play aspect to goaltending in Toronto now where like we brought up this word a lot and I'll use it again, environment. I think the environment for save percentage is a very positive one right now. I think a league average goalie could come into this team and play above league average in terms of the results that they post. So whether you get a Drieger, whether you get an Allmark, whether you get a Morazic, insert name, I think could do a decent job for the Leafs next year. Will it be good enough to win a Stanley Cup and to give a Vasilevsky performance, Conn Smythe worthy? Probably not, but can it be good enough to get a team who controls the run of play and controls the run of chances and for once shoots more than 2% in an important playoff series? I think that could be enough to win. I just wonder if that actually happens because this team's cursed. 
We'll wrap up here, but the only thing that I want to note on this, and this could be an hour-long conversation in of itself, we should maybe do a podcast about it. The thing I would just say is I wonder if we are taking that for granted a little bit when we say like it's like they're really good defensively, it's a plug-and-play team, like et cetera, et cetera, because again, the division sucked and it was a shortened season, and I really wonder, I really wonder what like you know. Okay, McDavid and Dreisaitl are sick, but that team is full of holes. And the Jets had bring up the same thing, where they had an Ehlers, they had like they have all these offensive weapons. They could barely control the puck. Yeah, and that's the thing. If if you have the puck, you'll get more chances. They never played Tampa. They never played Boston's top line. They never played Colorado. They never like they never played like these kinds of teams that like they needed those legitimate challenges. Measuring stick games. Yeah, they they really needed them. So I just I wonder, yeah, like do I think that they could get Campbell and like Allmark and be a playoff team? Yeah. But like are we here to watch them be a playoff team or are we here to watch them win a cup? Cuz I've I've we've seen this playoff bullshit for 5 years. I've just I'm sitting here. That's why a guy like George I've actually intrigues me cuz I sit there and go this guy actually has a chance to be like very very good and the thing with him is that it's not just for this upcoming season he has the chance to be a starting goalie for the next four or five plus years this could be a guy for longer than that if if it breaks well and so there's something to that so that's that's kind of been like my big thinking cap there i just i think the leafs are good defensively i think they're improved i actually would be very curious how they would fill a, a a gap of losing a justin hole like we we probably underplay that but like losing him like it would hurt like it would throw like there would be some questions as to what they're going to do on defense and you know they have like those top three guys are all aging we'll see they have serious questions like we said they have to figure out their goalie they have to figure out the morgan riley situation and by extension whatever is going to happen with the expansion draft and they have to figure out like a real third line center I mean, left wing's going to be a hole, too, assuming Zach Hyman gets a, a big payday somewhere else. I don't know if they can find a way to keep him. It's There's there's an argument to be made for it, but maybe we get into those discussions next week when we start to evaluate the lease offseason from a contractual standpoint. So hold on to that thought. We'll be back next week to talk about more lease offseason stuff. We've gone through all the forward targets, the D targets, the goalie targets. We've looked at around the league. Maybe we'll look a bit more introspectively in this next podcast and evaluate the Leafs roster, look at their cap-friendly page for a full hour, and talk ourselves into who's staying and who's going. I had fun this week, Anthony. Kevin Woodley's a smart guy. I'd definitely be down to have him on again. Really enjoy his work. So, Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? No, because if I say anything, it's going to lead to another hour-long conversation. <laughs> yeah, go go eat more pasta. Enjoy Italy's big Euro Cup win there, buddy. Euro Cup champions. Oh man. My my family, my my ancestors in England are are not gonna sleep well after watching that penalty kick. I uh, went to college after. It was glorious. It was uh it was a gritty, gritty morning waking up, but it felt nice to cheer for a team that actually understands how to win big games. It felt nice to cheer for a team that understands that depth and having a team of contributors matters not just one or two guys and laying out the red carpet for them and uh yeah there's not many championships i get to celebrate even though the raptors won recently and italy did win in 2006 but i am going to enjoy the absolute hell out of this and as someone who is cheering for england in that game sorry buddy it felt very similar to how the rest of my life has gone so yeah go leafs go 
Jesus. We talk about analytics. I've seen a bunch of analytic arguments for it. I just, you'll never convince me that putting a 19 year old in that spot to shoot makes any sense. Yeah, just fantastic coaching decisions all over in that game. You put in two guys cold to take penalties and then a 19 year old to pick five. And then everyone's like, it's a coin flip. I was like, this was over. There was no chance they were winning. Also, p- parking the bus for 88 minutes. Not sure if that's the best strategy in the world. Yeah, they, they deserve to lose. They deserve to lose straight up. <sighs> God damn it. I'm always rooting for the wrong teams. I don't know why I do this to myself. Forza Azuri. We'll talk next week, buddy. I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Good chat, buddy. We'll talk next week. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.